Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought we'd talk a little bit about some of the things that are happening with NATO. It looks like Finland really wants to join. The whole Ukraine thing has had the opposite effect that uh, Vladimir Putin wanted, right, Jim? Exactly. Uh, not only has it mobilized NATO in ways he didn't expect, but it's it's hurting. Well, <laughs> once he gets over this, it's hurting his arms sales. Uh, Pakistan, for example, is openly talking about uh, dropping China uh, because their substitutions, their up their how should I put it, their uh, superior versions of Russian weapons are not so superior, and they think it would be best to uh, get back to uh, Western suppliers, which is difficult because they're broke. But it shows an interesting, you know, change of heart. India, in the meantime, is still, you know, trying to figure out ways to pay for stuff they've already bought from Russia. But I'm sure they're thinking, too, that, you know, you know, this this Russian stuff, uh, you know, it may not be that good. Uh, for example, they they uh, they have most of the T-90 tanks in existence. They're a, they're a major export customer, the major cust- export customer for them. And uh, he's seeing the, the Indians are seeing a lot of pictures of blown up uh, T-90s, including the latest model, which is supposed to be you know, resistant to the weapons that the, uh, the Ukrainians are using. So uh, that's, a, that's already a long-term effect that the uh, Russians are going to have to deal with. Another problem with NATO, as it were, is that in order to uh, shift a lot of their, their support, monetary and otherwise, to Ukraine, they've cut back on their contributions to the World Food Aid Program. And that means that, uh, you know, Africa, where about 80% of the, uh, of the food need is, and most of the people in danger of starvation, uh, are going to have their... Uh, <laughs> They're going to have their food supplies cut substantially. I mean, the price is going up, uh, and they have, and there's less money to buy it. Uh, so that may be not necessarily a disaster, but it's going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of Africans. I mean, they'll they'll save the starving, uh, but you know, uh, the money just isn't there uh, to uh, you know to uh, supply all the demand. Uh, and of course, with Finland. Uh, <laughs> That really blew up in his face. Uh, Sweden is still considering it, but they, the Finns uh, politicians are saying we must do it immediately, as soon as possible. Now, the European Union, in the meanwhile, in the meantime, has looked at the uh, Ukrainian uh, application, as it were, for joining the EU, and they pointed out that you know Ukraine, especially in its current state. Uh, is way below the uh, you know the entry standards as it were, so that has to be worked out. Uh, and on the ground, the, the uh, how should I put it, the battle for uh, uh, Ukraine between the Ukrainian forces and the Russians is heating up. Uh, the Ukrainians have developed tactics that enable them to push back the uh, Ukrainian uh, the Russian advance. 
they pushed it back quite a bit. There is partisan activity breaking out within Russian-occupied territory. Um, and the Russians are basically uh, openly considering, um, well, for all intents and purposes, um, annexing uh, Donbass, uh, Crimea, uh, the Kherson, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Kherson uh, city uh, area, which which controls the uh, the Donetsk River, which basically controls most of the uh, grain exports and a lot of the imports that uh, Ukraine depends upon. So not only does Ukraine have to uh, drive them out of uh, Donbass, but may, the most important thing is on the coast, because the Russians are apparently shifting their uh, their how should I put it their major efforts. Uh, to capturing Odessa, which is the major port uh, that the Ukrainians still have on the Black Sea. Now, right now, the uh, the Russian uh, Black Sea fleet controls, uh, you know, the Black Sea. Uh, it's considered a war zone, so the Turks haven't uh, invoked, you know, the, uh, the the treaty they signed in the 1920s about who gets into the Black Sea during wartime, and that means basically nobody, especially Russians. So they don't have, they're not able to bring in any more ships. Now, that could get interesting because um, the uh, Ukrainians have figured out how to do a number, as it were, on, uh, on Russian ships. Um, they basically uh, – now, this is, this is rumored as it were, rumor intelligence. But apparently, uh, we knew that the NATO was flying their AWACS aircraft, you know, inside – uh, you know, Poland, uh, Romania, and what have you, and uh, supplying the um, Ukrainians with uh, intelligence, as it were, about, you know, what the Russians have in the air, where it is, etc. But apparently a, an American P-8, uh, you know, maritime reconnaissance aircraft uh, was operating uh, down, at, I believe, in Romania. And then uh, shortly before the Moskva was hit by the uh, Ukrainian um, uh, anti-ship missiles, uh, the uh, P-8 turned off its transponder and went dark. <laughs> and of course, the, like I said, the rumor is that that was done so they could go in there and basically uh, find the Moskva, pinpoint its location, and transmit that to the Ukrainians. So the Russian complaint that the, the NATO was helping, you know, the uh, Ukrainians find their ships at sea may be true. But even if it isn't true, it's certainly possible. And we don't know how many, uh, you know, uh, maritime patrol aircraft are going dark or not even going dark and basically giving the uh, the uh, Ukrainians a very up-to-date picture of uh, where Russian warships are on the, uh, on, on, in the Black Sea. Now, they apparently have most of their ships at sea now. They, after the, <clears throat> the latest uh, debacle where they lost a, a landing craft and two of their Raptor you know, assault boats, uh, they've lost most of their uh, Raptors so far since March uh, to the Ukrainians. Uh, they've uh, they've basically uh, gambled, as it were, and uh, and and sent. Uh, I think the other uh, amphibious air ships they have towards Odessa. Now, whether or not the Russians will land, whether or not they they have enough uh, you know guided uh, missiles 
and uh, and and cruise missiles and ballistic missiles to uh, to weaken the defenses of of Odessa remains to be seen. I doubt if the Ukrainians are going to give it up to any amphibious assault. And now it looks uh, you know rather unlikely that the uh, Russians are going to uh, have enough ships surviving the um, uh, the Ukrainian. Uh, anti-ship missile uh, attacks uh, to get in there. Now, the Ukrainians are also asking for harpoon missiles, uh, which have better countermeasures than the uh, than their their own Neptune missiles, which are an up- updated uh, copy of the Russian KH-35 anti-ship missile. Uh, and those might just be shipped in there <clears throat> without any announcement. And then suddenly the rest of the Black Sea fleet disappears. Uh, once that happens, you know, all bets are off about, you know, what the Ukrainians can do. At least they won't be exposed to uh, the threat of amphibious attack anymore or, you know, bombardment from the sea. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they haven't got much of a navy left. They have a few ships left, uh, but I don't think it's enough to assert domination over the uh uh, the uh, the Black Sea, but that again that remains to be seen. They they can bring ships can be brought in <coughs> through the Danube. <coughs> excuse me, light ships. Uh, also, they they might have a few left in the Caspian Sea. Uh, they have a canal <coughs> that that uh, goes to the uh, and enters exits in the Black Sea. Has been there for decades, and that's where they brought in one of the uh, the Raptors that have been stationed in the Caspian. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not looking good for uh, Mr. Putin. Uh, he basically is, is stating that he, uh, he he must have some kind of victory. Uh, he did not on the uh, Victory Day uh, speech. They celebrate the victory over Germany every year. Uh, he did not follow up with any call for a mass mobilization. That is apparently because the uh, KGB, uh, you know, secret secret population survey indicated that would end disastrously. A lot of people would just flat out refuse. There's more, uh, how shall I put it, popular opposition within inside Russia. A lot of those fires and explosions in uh, in Russian logistics facilities inside, sometimes deep inside uh, Russia, are believed the work of, uh, you know, uh, anti-war Russians. Uh, there's also fires being set on recruiting stations where they try and recruit their uh, their contract soldiers, uh, and uh, those those are apparently not Ukrainian because some of them are very deep inside of Russia. Um, so it's not looking good, but it's not hopeless. I mean, basically, if he can hang on to the areas in uh, Ukraine that he already holds, or it makes it too expensive for the Ukrainians to take them. Uh, he might have a chance, but the Ukrainians are just as determined, if not more so, uh, to figure out ways to uh, take them back uh, without, you know, incurring a lot of casualties. I mean, Ukrainian morale has remained high because they have been taking far fewer casualties than the Russians, and the Ukrainians are aware of it. Um, so, you know, uh, morale, <laughs> the way the morale goes might be the decisive factor in all of this. Austin, what what are your thoughts about NATO and 
what the Ukraine war. Well, uh, uh, Jim kind of gave us a rundown on the operational situation now after initially um, commenting on on uh, what uh, Sweden and Finland were up to. And I think in so I'll go pick that up a little bit. Just one thing, Jim, that Montreux Treaty is 1936. I mean, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, folks, Dunnigan and I have talked about this stuff about Turkey all the time. So it means no. I just pointed out because every once in a while we get a email from somebody saying you guys got that wrong. Well, okay, we corrected on that. Um, look, Finland and Sweden just flipped, Dan, uh, in uh, 2014 when uh, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea. Well, they weren't the only countries that flipped, but they, and I'm telling you, you know, they, they, they uh, you know, uh, that's, the, they weren't blinded. They didn't have blinders on, but here it came. Suddenly, that <laughs> agreement that World War II had supposedly imposed on the end of World War II on uh, on Europe that you didn't go take territory by military aggression. Um, it was ripped to shreds. That was that Budapest Accord of 1994 that the U.S. and Great Britain backed up. Ukraine traded its nuclear weapons, sent them to Russia for an agreement in perpetuity of the guarantee of Ukraine's territorial integrity by the Russians. And it was gone. Now, that shook NATO. NATO suddenly saw once again that it had a reason to exist. There were plenty of people in every single NATO ally, uh, NATO country, that realized the alliance was extremely valuable. Uh, Not just the Balts, even though the Balts probably realize it more than anyone else because they are – strategically protected by Article 5, which, you know, we've flippantly called the Three Musketeers Clause, but uh, it, it it amounts to that. It means if you attack a NATO nation, you choose to do that, you are at war with the rest of NATO. Yes, there are all kinds of little finagling that can be done about a, na- a nation deciding whether to commit forces, but you are as a member of the alliance, you are committed to oppose the uh, nation invading uh, NATO territory. Now, Finland, let me, let's go check out the Finns and Swedes, first of all. Really, during the Cold War, despite all of the socialist leftist political garbage you would hear from Sweden, Sweden knew who the enemy was who their enemy was. There was a lot of inside cooperation, particularly with Nor- uh, uh, Norway and Denmark, which are both NATO uh, uh, NATO countries. The same thing went for Finland, even though Finland had to keep it, you know, Finlandizations. Uh, Finland had to keep it very quiet, Soto Voce. Very, very quiet. But you look at the Finnish defense system, it's a nation in arms, and they're armed to fight Russia, just like they did during the Winter War and then the uh, Second War they fought with the Russians in, uh, uh, during uh, 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 World War II. They know the bear is their enemy, and they know who their friends are. Their friends are not only the other Nordics, it's Western Europe, United States, uh, uh, Canada. 
2014, they really saw no reason to con- uh, continue playing uh, that, uh, continue the charade of being a neutral. They really weren't a neutral. They were threatened. Putin had been telling us for all, let's see, in 2014, he'd been telling us for mm, 15, 20, uh, uh, between 15 and 20 years uh, <clears throat> that uh, he thought the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest uh, tragedy of the uh, 20th century. Uh, that's what he thought. And he'd already showed signs of of wanting to rebuild the uh, uh, Russia as a as a great power. I've I've got that column up uh, in November of 2004 that's on back in the on point uh, archive that even talks about that. And that's how many years ago? That's uh, 18 years ago. So uh, the 2014 Finland and Sweden the die is cast, and you see. If you just go ahead and track public opinion polling in Finland and and Sweden, and there was always a small faction that wanted to quote unquote join the West, and EU is part of the European version of joining the West, but also join the alliance, because what you get with the alliance is a backup. A big boy, the United uh, the United States, and it takes a big boy to back you up against Russia. Uh, and not only was that reflected in just political polling, you begin to see Finland and to some degree Sweden cooperating with well observer missions, training missions. And then suddenly participating in war games, you know, the Trident Juncture uh, exercise, the one in 2018, which Strategy Page covered fairly closely, uh, was a major, major exercise. There have even been NATO exercises in Finland with uh, contingents uh, from the U.S., uh, Great Britain, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, other Nordics. I want to make one other thing uh, comment about the, the history of this. The Swedes, uh, actually, I, I, I got this confirmed from uh, Danish sources. The Swedes had, even during the Cold War, had had access access through Denmark to some air control information and air identification. In other words, they were getting approved feeds of NATO uh, air and space picture from Denmark, and it was kept quiet. Sweden benefited, and ultimately NATO benefited. Now to move up to what's happened since uh, February of this uh, of this year, <coughs> support in Finland is overwhelming. I've seen Dan. I've seen in the last. A month, and I wrote a column about this two weeks ago, too, about you know Finland and Sweden joining NATO. But I, I saw figures running on Finland anywhere from 62 percent to almost 75 percent of the of the people saying it's time to get get busy, get serious, and apply to join NATO. And Two smaller parties and some politicians that had been uh, opposed to it had publicly changed their attitude. Uh, it was like, you know, including I read a, a uh, 
interview, and I don't remember the uh, the man uh, the man's name, but he says, you know, that's uh, we've got to be realistic about about uh, what the kind of th threat that Putin and uh, Russia poses, and. So you you've seen the switch again. It wasn't immediate. You can see it going on since March of of, of twenty fourteen, which is why Finland this week said we want to uh, we want to join. Now in Sweden, you'd seen the same effect. It hasn't been as as the numbers weren't as startling as in in Finland, but it's certainly well over fifty percent, uh, low sixties. But the Swedish uh, parties that had traditionally, and they were absolutely wedded to uh, uh, neutrality, have changed their positions, and the, the public statement. Really, it was in, uh, I think, in April, even though there had been a lot of leaks to, that it suggested they were going to say this, is if Finland decides to join, we're going to join. Well, you've seen the Finns move, and I strongly suspect, based on everything I read, we'll shortly see the Swedes move. Now, joining NATO is usually a slow process, but... Uh, both Sweden and Finland have military establishments, you can, Jim can talk about this, that are NATO quality. Uh, they bring a great deal to, uh, to, uh, to the alliance. They have modern economies. They're both, de both democracies. And uh, there's uh, supposedly, again, this is now this is rumant, like Jim says, but it's reasonable rumant um, that uh, most NATO nations are prepared to fast track them. First, because of the threat posed by uh, uh, Putin, and second, because they want it. And really, the deep third, which is not insignificant, they've been cooperating with NATO for really for decades. So that's it, it's. It, Jim started off uh, this uh, this strategy talk by saying, you know, Putin's brought it on himself. I think we've said that in about four or five uh, uh, podcasts about uh, Russia and uh, and Ukraine. But th this is a strategic defeat for Putin. You know, he's oh, NATO's coming to get us. He's been saying, "This what what a threat." Well, it's his own actions that's you know, strengthened and enlarged NATO, and then added a you know a thirteen hundred kilometer front that uh, Russia's going to have to worry about, and that's up north, and it's got uh, a lot of very difficult terrain uh, in it. I'm talking about the Finnish front. So that's that's what NATO's expansion. It, it, Plus NATO's morale, uh, Russia's morale is sunk. NATO, again, as, as I said, not to repeat myself, but it, it now knows why it exists. One thing I'm curious about, Jim, is the NATO countries have been feeding weapons into the Ukrainians. That's drawing down our stockpiles, uh, correct? And that those are all going to need to be replaced. Yes, I, I, we've covered that regularly because it is a interesting situation. It's called, you know, replenishing the war reserve. The war reserve, uh, that is, you know, the uh, the quantity of supplies, especially ammunition, that will get the uh, forces, uh, you know, active duty forces through combat for 30 to 60 days before 
the factories uh, back home can tool up uh, to, uh, you know, uh, replace the uh, ammunition and other expenditures. Well, I was put to a very realistic test. <laughs> and even during the Cold War, we realized, you know, you know, especially with a lot of the missiles and, uh, you know, the high tech stuff, you can't mobilize as quickly as you did during World War uh, Two. And, uh, you know, you need bigger reserves, but bigger war reserves are expensive uh, and they're unpopular with, uh, you know, with legislatures, especially the American Congress. Uh, you know, you can't really score any uh, reelection points, you know, uh, you know, uh, appropriating a um, a sufficient, uh, sufficiently large war reserve. And, you know, most politicians realize if there was a major war, which even now is unlikely, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the mistake of not building up those war reserves comes home to roost, uh, a lot of them will just say, hey, who knew, right? And, you know, <laughs> depending on how good their, their PR people are, they might get away with it. But again, that's just, you know, politics one-on-one. Uh, unless something's going to get your votes, you kick it down the road. And you can you can point to a lot of programs, necessary programs, essential programs, things that should have been done that didn't get done because, you know, the politicians, the elected representatives of the people realize that they could just, you know, come up with a way, you know, form a commission. Whenever you hear the government talking about forming a commission to study a problem, uh, kiss a solution goodbye because a commission is another way of, you know, uh, smothering, you know, the problem uh, until it dies, you know, of lack of oxygen. Um, but uh, this is very real and immediate. And the only saving grace we have is it's not us who are using up the munitions at a, at a rapid pace. Now, this has caused the manufacturers uh, <laughs> to smell, you know, blood like a vampire does. Uh, and they're saying we can do it. And they have an opportunity to do it. And Congress is under an enormous amount of pressure to pay for them to do it. <laughs> that's that's a, that's an unusual config, uh, you know, uh, configuration of, such, of events that enable you to test the ability of uh, U.S. Uh, you know munitions and uh, wep- and weapons manufacturers to actually you know meet a wartime demand. Uh, the last time we had something like that was in the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, where the Israeli, you know, we had access to their actual, you know, expenditures and what have you. And, you know, the Israelis' comment was, which was nothing, you know, revealing, was, man, this is a lot heavier than we expected. And, and of course, Nino realized it's a whole lot heavier than even we expected. So that that's when the in the 70s and periodically after that, you know, the uh, the issue of uh, adequate war reserves came up. Now, the uh, I think it's Northrop uh, is is manufacturing that missile. Uh, they say they can do it because they they've kept producing them, even though the United States hasn't bought any of the well, like the the, uh, the Javelin missile. The United States hasn't bought any uh, for about eighteen years, but production has still been fairly intense because it's become a very popular export item, and. Um, uh, this is basically the saving grace. I mean, it's been around since the early 90s, I believe, and it first proved itself uh, in the hands of the special forces, keeping the Iraqis out of, out of uh, the Kurdish territories. Uh, and ever since then, it's basically proved the most effective uh, anti-tank guided missile against any kind of tank. Um, 
And of course, there've been upgrades. Now, the the Ukrainians didn't get the latest upgrade that could hit, you know, penetrate uh, top armor, reactive armor, and what have you. But apparently, you know, they 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 took out a um, the latest version of the T90, which has all those enhancements. You know, not just uh, better protection on the on the top of the uh, the turret, which is most vulnerable. That most of the the uh, the the anti tank guided missiles use top attack. In other words, they fly over the tank and then boom, uh, explode, detonate a, a, a shaped charge downwards, uh, going through the the thinnest uh, armor. And of course, for Russian tanks, that's uh, that's a that's a kill shot, because the Russians don't the don't safeguard the armor, the ready the ready ammunition in the turret uh, the way uh, Western tanks do. Um, and uh, it, I guess. It's getting to the point where the uh, Ukrainians are getting the latest upgrade of the um, of the javelin. Uh, there's other missiles. The uh, Swedes uh, produced the NLIW, which is a, basically a mini javelin. It's only got a maximum range of about 600 meters, compares to four times that with the uh, with the javelin. Uh, but it's a lot cheaper, much cheaper. Uh, and, uh, and apparently, maybe you know, a lot easier to make. Now the Britons are making most of them. Uh, Jim, lights. just a yeah. correction, because I know some of the readers have commented about this uh, before. Uh, it's Raytheon and and Lockheed. Okay, and like I said, I wasn't sure. Uh, they all had to merge together, you know, in my eyes. But anyway, they, all all the manufacturers of munitions, and this includes most of the majors, are sensing that here's a here's a uh, <laughs> Here's an opportunity to be heroes and to test in real time and under realistic conditions their ability to replenish wartime losses. Now, the Ukrainians are also providing a, how should I put it, a, an example of uh, innovative and previously unused tactics. I mean, one of the things that uh, that that, that uh, is impressing the, the Pentagon is uh, SpaceX and Starlink and Elon Musk. I mean, basically, you know, he he founded those operations. He owns them, and he's the guy who unilaterally ordered. You know, on the day the Russians invaded, he says, "All right, I'm turning Starlink on over Ukraine." Within days, he had 500 of the kits, which is basically a, a small dish and a, a special modem, so you can hook it up to uh, a computer. And uh, he he demonstrated that without <laughs> without government assistance, he can patch things. He was able to defeat uh, numerous Russian attempts to uh, to jam or to disrupt Starlink, but Starlink has become so robust that it's become a key part of another you know, innovation which is alien to the, to the West. Uh, they developed their own uh, fire control system, artillery fire control system. Uh, something most people aren't aware of is the United States Army developed in the 1930s this uh, business of this system of uh, basically calling it artillery and naval gunfire from all guns within range for a timed, you know, time on target. In other words, to uh, to hit a target at the same time. Uh, the, the German, uh, you know, German POWs. Their observation of uh, all that was that it's unfair, but so uh, that must work. Uh, <clears throat> Says then, 
that system has been degraded, even though they've automated the uh, uh, parts of it with first with uh, with programmable calculators and 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 many computers. Uh, because during the uh, the war on terror, uh, well, even before that, uh, the the uh, lawfare intervened, and the army had to basically uh, insert a, uh, a a a a judicial um, a judgment phase. <laughs> so while in during World War II, they got the uh, the time uh, between the fire request and delivery down to five minutes from about 20 minutes early in the war. Uh, it expanded to about an hour now because you have to involve the lawyers and they're, they're usually in Washington. Now the, the, you know, the politicians thought, well, we can do to make this work. We have this global communication satellite stuff, what have you, but th there's no predicting, you know, how long the bureaucrats will, uh, will debate uh, before saying, yes, you can fire. Now this irritated the troops enormously because, uh, while they were waiting for the, uh, the, the fire order, they were still under fire by the enemy. Uh, special forces found ways to, you know, sort of, you know, get around it until they were discovered and they had to find, they had to find a new loophole. Uh, but for the regular troops, it was a great source of frustration and additional casualties. In fact, there were even complaints from Afghan civilians that, you know, hey, you know, when the, when they were, when they asked the American troops, you know, why didn't you attack the, uh, you know, the, the Taliban, when they were attacking our village, they say, well, we had to get permission from uh, Washington. And they looked at them incredulously and they said, why? Because we might take some casualties. And they said, yeah, basically, you know, no civilian casualties. Just, and they pointed out <laughs> that if they had gotten the fire and they lost a few civilians, it would have been far fewer civilian losses than if the Taliban won the battle. Um, so, I mean, that's one of those things that is, is going to be spotlighted, as it were, uh, with the Ukrainian situation. The Ukrainians uh, basically have a problem with the Russians turning their firepower on the uh, on the on the cities on the civilian population the russians found out that with starlink and this uh, the gis you know the the uh, basically the custom made um, you know fire control system which can deliver i guess they deliver fire within 30 seconds of the fire request uh, uh, you know there's no you know uh, slowdowns you know waiting for permission if somebody on the battlefield finds a target uh, they hit it now where that hurt the Russians the most was their artillery. Uh, you know, one of the things we sent in the latest package was fire control, Firefinder, the latest version of that. Uh, that's a battle tested. The first version was used in Afghanistan and Iraq. It had some problems. They were fixed. So it's basically a combat proven, as it were, you know, uh, fire control radar. The, the Ukrainians also have some old uh, Soviet era stuff, which they still use and, and in some cases still make. Uh, but the firefinder is much more efficient. Uh, it's easier to network, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so when the Russians get into a pitch battle with the Ukrainian forces uh, and they open up with their artillery, which, by the way, still operates in large units. I mean, at least battalions, you know, 12, 18 guns or brigades of several battalions. Uh, and they, so they're clumped together. Um, the uh, Ukrainians wipe them out. Actually, they started doing this uh, before uh, 2022. They started developing this capability um after 2014, but when Elon Musk got in there with Starlink, and 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 kept making improvements, uh, some of them at the, simply at the request, you know, upgrades as it were at the request of the the uh, the Ukrainians, 
uh, it developed into a potent counter battery. You know, it was firing on the enemy's artillery tool. Now, the other thing <laughs> that, that, that what's, what's Musk getting out of all this? Well, I mean, he's got a lot of non-paying customers in Ukraine, but uh, after it's all over, he's going to have a lot of paying customers. He's got plans to expand the Starlink uh, network from 2000 now. It's basically in the beta stage when this was going on. There were only a few hundred users around the world uh, who were basically testing it. And they were, the reports were good. So that's one reason why in late 2021, the Ukrainians were asking you know, Starlink uh, for early access to it. And, and Musk knew about this. And when the Russians actually invaded, he says, all right, let's make up for lost time. But what he's been doing is making Starlink more efficient in hostile areas, not in wartime hostile areas, but in areas like China or Russia, where Russia wants to control access to the Internet. And he's basically got it. Next thing you'll hear from him is he's accepting, you know, uh, cryptocurrency in, for payment, because basically it costs you about 500 bucks for the basic starter kit. That's the, the, uh, the dish, which can be easily hidden. Throw a tarp over it, whatever. Um, and it'll give you basically non censorable, <laughs> not, you know, non-government uh, uh, controlled uh, internet access, very high speed. And this is more of a threat to Russia and China than, you know, the Ukrainian use of it for fire control. So, you know, uh, Musk is altruistic, but sometimes, you know, fortune favors, the uh, you know, the, the, those who are doing good deeds. Um, and, uh, and he's got a chance to uh, to to develop and improve Starlink under very adverse conditions. So he's now planning to expand it to 42,000 of these mini satellites. These are about 500 pounds each. Uh, and basically, the more of them you have up up there, the more difficult it is to try and you know uh, run an anti-satellite campaign. In fact, it is now 2,000 is more than China, you know, or Russia could handle. But you know, the initial goal is about 10,000. But he's looking at 42,000 now. The reason he needs more is because he's expecting more demand, and he's expecting more. How should I put it? Uh, shadow demand, as it were, uh, from uh, from China and Russia. And the Chinese and Russians have already shown that they're willing to pay hard money, you know, to get access to the world Internet that isn't being censored by Russia and especially China. Uh, it also means, I mean, there's a lot of countries where it's not so much government interference, but simply no access at all. Uh, Africa, parts of Asia. And uh, that's where they detected the big market. And what's going on in Ukraine is, is basically giving him a, a major, you know, marketing coup, because here he's demonstrating that it really works. It works even if your local government or, or gangsters and whatever are, are looking to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, uh, interfere. Um, and it's basically going to revolution, revolutionize worldwide use of the Internet as well as making counter-battery far more effective. Austin? Uh, only I get back to the uh, NATO uh, component of this, is that uh, I, I, I said this, and Jim alluded to it as, as well. The, uh, the alliance has gone through, down at least three periods where it was uh, critics <clears throat> within the alliance said it's useless, NATO is dead. And of course, the most evident example of that was after 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet uh, uh, and the Soviet Union. Uh, 
the alliance has shown real resilience, uh, not simply because it's a military alliance. Even the poorest of the poor NATO nations are better off uh, in, in, in virtually all aspects of life than several of the areas Jim just mentioned that uh, are shut off from effective uh, uh, access uh, to the internet. Even uh, uh, to try to compare Turkey to some of these other places is a mistake because it's uh, it's porous. Uh, you know, it's internet porous and uh, information porous. Uh, try to compare you know, the, 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 the new uh, Balkan uh, members, it's, uh, there, there is no comparison. They have access now. And that is, uh, that's attractive, Dan, to be in, engaged in a, it's, a, it's attractive to the, to the people, the political groups that the United States and Western Europe need as allies. So I, I'm, I'm going to give a little rah-rah to the, some of the externalities uh, to, to NATO uh, as, as well. And, and, and what Musk is doing, what Jim was, uh, you know, was, was uh, discussing, is an example of what freedom and free market can do. I had a column about six weeks ago because there have been a couple of other uh, uh, wealthy Americans that have uh, provided uh, uh, use their resources to help Ukraine, not just raising money for uh, humanitarian aid, but uh, the individual from uh, North Carolina that bought a, a million rounds of ammunition on his own. And I later learned arranged to have that ammunition. Uh, shipped at no cost to the American taxpayer and no cost uh, to Ukraine. He got individuals to uh, donate to help fly it over there. And he, yes, there had to be some government approval, like, you know, moving U.S. weapons and war material uh, through private uh, resources. But he had several uh, uh, congressmen who backed him up, including one from his uh, 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 from his own state, and it, and it was bipartisan. Uh, small story, but really, it's not a small story. It's it's reflected in what uh, the U.S. Uh, and uh, a free country c can do. What one other uh, Jim was talking about the problem of maintaining sufficient uh, war stocks in a. United States and every democracy, where uh, that's not doing us any good. I think a contrarian argument, and Jim started to touch on it, can be made now if you look at 1973, and you also look at how value, how valuable those war stocks are in a crisis like Ukraine. And as Jim pointed out, it's we don't have our soldiers on the ground. Are our planes in the air doing the fighting? We're able to back up, in this case, the victim uh, with very, very useful cutting edge weapons. So make the argument to Congress now, look how valuable that is. How many divisions, quote unquote, measured in ground division equivalents, 
is a war stockage adequate war stockage worth and adequate not only in terms of being able to supply the United States and its immediate allies, <clears throat> but uh, potential allies. And uh, that might be a good column. I might write that. Well, that wraps us up today. Uh, and we'll talk about more aspects of the Ukraine war in the future, I'm sure. So we'll see you next time, gentlemen. Take care. Bye, guys. <laughs>